Hello and good morning. Welcome to, I don't know what day it is, but chapter 61 of OT with DA. Welcome to Instagram Live. Great to see people signing on already. And welcome to YouTube. I don't know uh, what day it is where you're at, but where I'm at, it is Saturday morning. So it's the Sabbath. And yeah, had a great night's rest. I slept a long time. In fact, we are going, I guess it'd be two hours later this morning. Uh, we're starting a little later than normal because last night it occurred to me that I don't have to teach at Arise at 9.30, I just have to go to church. So I was like, wait a minute, I can sleep in. And so last night I got like eight and a half hours of sleep. I'm feeling amazing. I had a little swim in the pool, uh, just snuck into the pool quietly this morning. Felt great, nice and cold. So I've had an amazing morning and uh, read through the chapter a couple times. Yeah, so I hope you're having a great day. Welcome to OT with DA, wherever you are. Cassandra says, I'm just watching the sunset. Oh, wow. Awesome. Naomi asks if I'm preaching a sermon this morning. No, no, I wouldn't be so leisurely if I was preaching this morning. I preached last Sabbath. And then I think I've agreed to preach next Sabbath, but this is a rare uh, Sabbath off for me. And by Sabbath off, I mean I'm only doing OT with DA. Oh, Robin asks, did Violetta arrive safely? Yes, she is here. She's happy. And I'm super happy that she's here. And this morning, she's all dressed up, ready to go to church, and she looks very cute. Um, she, in fact, that's one of the first things I said to her this morning when I saw her. I said, you are so pretty. She, she's amazing. I, I cannot say enough good about my wife. And anyway, I hope you're having a great day. This is a tricky chapter, right? Like a tough chapter. I'm really excited about my word as per usual. Um, truth be told, I was actually hoping that the word would occur a few more times or at least one or two more times in the chapter but as it is, it does occur in the chapter twice, and I will be absolutely blown away if anybody has the same word that I have. I hope you. I hope some of you do. I think that'd be amazing. So somebody says, Violetta is beautiful. I totally agree. I agree. Diana says, happy Sabbath from Sweden. Going to bed now. <laughs> You're getting ready for bed. I'm getting ready to go to church. These are the glories of living on a round world. So listen, I've, I've got a big day ahead of me today. I don't have a ton of time because I still have to sneak off to church. I'm very much looking forward to that. But we're in chapter 61, and it's titled Saul Rejected. And I think, originally I thought we were going to have somebody as a guest this morning, but when I spoke to him last night, he said, well, I've got to get up and teach Sabbath school. And so uh, I think he has tentatively agreed to be with us tomorrow morning. And that's my longtime friend, dear friend, uh, Sam Benello. And Sam's never been on a DA with DA or an OT with DA before. I Anyway, you'll get to meet him tomorrow. Really hope he can make it. He works very hard from Monday to Friday. So the only days that he has are Saturday and Sunday. And I was hoping to rope him in for both this morning and tomorrow. But as it turns out, I, I think he can, I think he'll be here tomorrow. That's the plan. Um, all right. Well, listen, I'm going to pray and we're going to get into this. Welcome, everybody. I hope wherever you are that you are either having a great Sabbath or you're on the verge of getting ready to have a great Sabbath as week is behind us. Um, 
yeah, I, I hope I hope you've had a great week, a productive week. I've had a wonderful week teaching at Arise. I went rock climbing yesterday, which was amazing. I actually got a little, a slight little tweak in my right finger, my right middle finger, that one right there. Just a little tweak there. So uh, I'm going to have to rest for a couple days and maybe do some eccentric lowers. So I do these little, anyway, I won't bore you with the details. Got to kind of fix that. Just a little tweak yesterday. I, I caught a hold when my fingers were extended and then it kind of snapped it out. And uh, I don't, my fingers almost never get sore. But I woke up this morning and I went to pull the, the closet door and I was like, ooh, a little something there. So I climbed really hard yesterday and on really small holds at the local gym. And so I, I think even when I did it, I was like, oh, that, that hurt, that hurt. So anyway, I stopped climbing then and I thought, well, it'll be fine. But I woke up this morning and it was a little pain in there. So anyway, I don't think it's anything major, but a couple days rest for sure. All right, let's pray. Really excited about at least my word. And the, the chapter is a hard one to get excited about, right? Like the, the chapter is titled Saul Rejected. And in my own, I've got the NIV here, the Lord rejects Saul as king, right? So this is, again, a sad chapter in Israel's history, and yeah, I've got some observations here that I'm pretty excited about. So let's pray, and we'll get right into this. Father in heaven, thank you for your love and mercy. Thank you for a new day of life. Father, in the case of those that are coming into the Sabbath, we want to thank you for the uh, week that is behind us. It's been a good week. Father, it's, it's a week that we were alive. We, we had opportunity to know you, to to obey you, to trust in you, and to repent before you. Father, help us as we continue our, our OT with BA um, reading challenge to use these opportunities. Father, life is not a guarantee. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know who holds tomorrow. And so help us, Father, every day to be mindful that, that this is all we have for sure, and we don't know what tomorrow brings. And so help us to lean into your love, to lean into your grace, and Father, teach us how to repent. Uh, Father, teach us how not to obey partially, but to obey completely and enthusiastically, joyfully. And so, Father, we love you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, chapter 61, Saul rejected. And I want to just say right at the outset, I'll just put some of my cards on the table right at the beginning of this chapter. There's really two ways to read that because it's Saul rejected. And I'm suggesting here that it, it could be read in one of two ways. And I think most people would just read that as Saul rejected by God. Saul rejected by God. And there certainly is good reason to read it that way, right? That's what the NIV says here. The Lord rejects Saul as king. But what if you took away the word by? So instead of Saul rejected by God, what if what's being primarily suggested here is Saul rejected God. And I'm going to suggest here that that's what's actually happening, that, that God's rejection of Saul is responsive, and Saul's rejection of God is the original rejection, right? And so there's, there's two ways to read that, right? Like, Saul rejected by God is how I think most of us would reflexively read that. We'd say, oh, yeah, you know, God rejected Saul, but that's not really what's going on, is it? Right? God's rejection of Saul as king is responsive, right? It's reactive to Saul's rejection of God 
of his obedience. And she actually makes that point in this chapter. She makes it, I think, just one time expressly with that, with that word reject, and she makes it subtly. But yeah, I wrote here right at the top of my, uh, on, on page one, 772, page one of the chapter, I wrote, Saul rejected by God, or Saul rejected God first, and then Saul rejected by God second. And God's rejection of Saul, I'll just say this right here, God's rejection of Saul is merely a recognition of reality that he had already been rejected by Israel's first king. Okay? And, and we'll have time to tease that out, but I just want to put that right on the right here so that we're reading this chapter through the correct lens, not God's arbitrary or unjust rejection of Israel, of Israel's first king, I should say. No, that's not what's going on. Israel's first king has consistently rejected God and his word and his command, and only then does God recognize the rejection that has already taken place. And so God's rejection is responsive. It's reactive. It's not, it's not original, right? It, it's not the initiative that God takes to reject. It's the response that God takes. Okay, so we'll get into that. Um, so let's pick it up. Paragraph one, Saul had failed to bear the test of faith in the trying situation at Gilgal. That's where he offered the sacrifice, right? Because Samuel was delayed providentially. And so he's like, I'll do it. Bring me the, the animal for the sacrifice and I'll offer it. She continues, and had brought dishonor upon the service of God, but his errors were not yet irretrievable, which I thought was an interesting way of saying that. Irretrievable is a very fascinating word there in that context. And the Lord would grant him, and this was the key idea here, another opportunity. Exactly. God is going to give another opportunity to learn the lesson of unquestioning faith in his word and obedience to his commands. Next paragraph, when reproved by the prophet at Gilgal, Saul saw no great sin in the course he had pursued. He felt that he had been treated unjustly, and he endeavored to vindicate his actions and offered excuses for his error. From that time, he had little interaction with the prophet. Samuel loved Saul as his own son, which I thought was a fascinating observation. While Saul, bold and ardent in temper, had held the prophet in high regard, but he resented Samuel's rebuke and thenceforth, thenceforth avoided him as far, so far as possible. So here's a little window into what's going to happen in this chapter, that when Saul disobeys, when Saul falls well short of God's ideal and of God's command, there's always a reason. There's always, and Ellen White actually uses this word here, a plausible excuse, right? She uses the word plausible. The word plausible means believable. Yeah, 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 okay, I can see where you're coming from there. And so she says, well, he saw no great sin in the course. He would, I mean, after all, Samuel was late and the people needed a sacrifice. They needed some encouragement and a sacrifice to God was just the thing to boost the spirits. And he felt that he'd, he had been treated unjustly. I mean, come on, really? Is it that big of a deal? He had endeavored to, to vindicate his actions and he offered excuses. And so Saul here is behaving like many of us have behaved. And we all know people like this who, when they do something that's less than optimal, less than ideal. They, well, 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 there's a reason. There's always a qualification. Oh, well, the reason was, and we're going to see that here again today, when Saul refuses to abide by and obey God's express and exact command, is that, well, well, what was the people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, we did do, you know, we destroyed all the other stuff, but, you know, the people, they wanted to keep, right? So there's always some plausible excuse. And, and I tell you, 
It's easy to observe this in others, but I think it's also quite easy to observe in oneself, at least in my case, right? I can say that, that if I am under a temptation, if I'm like, well, you know, I could do X or Y or Z, whatever it might be, something that I'm tempted to do, some, you know, lashing out in a situation, which I know, well, it's probably not best, but after all, this person, so I can... I can generate some plausibility to why I'm acting in a way that I myself know is not optimal. It's not ideal. It's partial. And let's be honest here. There is some obedience. Saul obeys the command of God. He goes up against the Amalekites. He destroys much of what he was commanded to destroy, but not all of it. And so it's really easy, in my, in my opinion, in my experience, it, it can be easy to talk yourself into a partial obedience and, and to talk yourself into even, and to, and to convince yourself that even your disobedience is plausible. Well, you know, there, I had a reason. There was a good reason why I did it. And so let's talk about that now. God says to Saul, go up and through Samuel, go up and destroy the Amalekites. Remember that the Amalekites were the first ones to wage war on the Israelites, as they were making their way out of Egypt, right? They were slaves that are freshly liberated. They were a ragtag band. They were not a, a you know warlike tribe, nothing like that. And the, the Amalekites came up and waged a pretty successful war, if I'm not mistaken, on those that were lagging behind, right? So you have a long line of people that are stretched out, and obviously the slowest are going to be those at the back. And if I'm remembering the story correctly, which I probably should have gone back and read, the Amalekites are attacking those in the rear and really wreaking havoc on them. And so God says, we're going to remember that they were the first to make war upon Israel. They've had since then, I mean, that's hundreds of years before this, they've had much time to repent, much time to, to turn away from their cruel and idolatrous ways. They have rejected that opportunity right? Just like we read in the first paragraph there, God would give him another opportunity. God is in the business of giving people additional opportunities. He gave the Amalekites opportunities. Opportunities would be a good word here, actually, because there were opportunities for obedience. There were opportunities for repentance. It's not my word, but I think it would be a good one. And so uh, she quotes Deuteronomy 25, 19, you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget she then goes on to say, this is page 773, right after quoting Deuteronomy 25, for 400 years, the execution of the sentence had been deferred or reserved, but the Amalekites had not turned from their sins. The Lord knew that this wicked people would, if it were possible, blot out his people and worship and his people and his worship from the earth. And now the time had come for the sentence so long delayed to be executed. The next paragraph I thought was quite interesting as well. The forbearance that God has exercised toward the wicked emboldens men in transgression, but their punishment will be nonetheless certain and terrible for being long delayed. She then quotes Isaiah 28, 21, which I really have always liked this verse because God punishing is referred to as his unusual act. Some translations, his strange act. Let's read that. Isaiah 28, 21. For Yahweh will rise up as at Mount Perizim, he will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. And this really resonates with me. I, I like the fact that punishment and destruction are not 
native to God. In other words, they're not his first language. We've already mentioned many times before that God speaks to his people in blessings bestowed, and when they do not receive and accept those blessings as from him, he then speaks to them in blessings removed. And so I've used the the analogy here, the metaphor here, that God's native tongue is to bless, and his second language is to punish and to remove blessings. And the way that he punishes very often is by the removal of his protection or the removal of blessings. And yet even here, God who is the life giver, God who wants us to be joyous and flourishing and happy and successful and all of those wonderful things, for God to administer a punishment is his unusual act. It's, a, it's his strange act. It's not that he can't do it. It's not that he won't do it. It's that his natural inclination is to bless. It's to benefit. I used to say to my own sons when I would have to administer a punishment, whether it was a, a spanking or a timeout or the removal of some privilege, I would say to them, boys, let me explain something to you. I don't want to do this. There's nothing in me that says, ah, this is my opportunity. I get to punish my sons. I would say, I hope you understand that there's nothing in me that has any desire to do this. My desire would be that I never have to do this ever again, that this is the last time I ever punish you because what's in my heart is for you to be benefited, for you to be blessed, for you for you to have a great day. I want you to prosper. I want you, and so only as a last resort, reluctantly as my fatherly unusual act, my strange act, do I administer these punishments. And so how about this? If that was the case for me, a sinner, right? Jesus said, if you being evil, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those that ask him? In other words, if me, a, a, a rebellious, hard-hearted, sinful knucklehead, me, if I can love my children to such a degree and want to see them succeed so much that I can say to them in truth, in sincerity, I do not want to punish you. I do not want to take away this privilege or to administer this spanking. I don't want to do that. It's not in me. How much more is that true of God? Because God is so much greater than I am, so much better than I am, so much more magnanimous and kind than I am. And so I, it really resonates with me that this administration of punishment, even deserved punishment, even just punishment, is his unusual act, according to Isaiah 28, 21. And then Ellen White just says it expressly in the very next sentence. To our merciful God, the act of punishment is a strange act. Well, there you have it. I mean, you just can't say that. You just can't say that any clearer than this. Somebody's making fun of me because yesterday, I guess I called myself a doofus. And today I call myself a knucklehead. <laughs> okay, it's true. It's true. I, I mean, I am these things. I think we all are. You can choose your own, uh, you can choose your own word to describe yourself, your unregenerate self, your, your unchristian self. But apart from Jesus, if I reject Jesus, if I reject God, then I am not the best version of myself. I'm the worst version of myself. But even then, God's native language is to bless, not to punish. To punish, to remove blessing is his second tongue, his second language. And I've never used that before. In all my years of preaching, I've never used that exact analogy, but I'm so thankful that I came upon that statement right here in Patriarchs and Prophets, and I think I'll use that for the rest of my life. That, that a second language is still a language that you can speak well and you can speak with, you know, facility, but your native tongue is a tongue that you know well. You know the idioms, you know the nuances, you know the subtleties. God's native tongue is to bless. It's to lavish uh, gifts. It's to 
create opportunities for flourishing. And his second tongue, which he can speak well, but it's not his native tongue, is to remove blessings for the purpose of punishment. So Ellen White says, to our merciful God, the act of punishment is a strange act. And I don't know if this hits you like it hits me. I love this. It just is so resonant with how I understand God, how I read scripture, how I perceive God, how I see God in Christ. It just resonates profoundly with me. And then Ellen White quotes several passages to this effect, Ezekiel 33, 11, Exodus 34, 6, and 7. And um, she says he does not delight in vengeance. He will execute judgment. I'm on page 774, uh, 628 of the original, same paragraph. Uh, he will execute judgment upon the transgressors of his law. He is forced to do this, to preserve the inhabitants of the earth from utter depravity and ruin. In order to save some, he must cut off those that have become hardened in sin. And we've already seen this back on page 388. We've mentioned this. This is one of my all-time statements. Let me just read that here. 388. Um, this was one where the whole page was an all-time statement. I mean, it's, it's the only place so far where the entire page for me was an all-time statement. And this is 388 of the uh, types and symbols and then 325 of the original. But listen to this. It was the mercy of God, this is in the chapter Idolatry at Sinai, it was the mercy of God that thousands should suffer to prevent the necessity of visiting judgments upon millions. In order to save the many, he must, he must, the operative word there, he must, there's a necessity to it, he must punish the few. Just a few sentences later, it was necessary, there's that language of necessity, must, necessity, necessary. It was necessary for the good of Israel and also as a lesson to all succeeding generations that crime should be promptly punished. And it was no less a mercy to the sinners themselves that they should be cut short in their evil course. It was in love to the world, in love to Israel, and even in love to the transgressors. Whoa! That crime was punished with swift and terrible severity. Yeah, I'm on that page. I, I see that. And so when she says here back on page 774, he is forced to do this to preserve the inhabitants of the earth from utter depravity and ruin, in order to save some, he must cut off those who have become hardened in sin. And so the Amalekites have been justly deserving of punishment from day one. And yet here we are, what does she say, 400 years later, and finally, slowly, almost reluctantly, God will administer his strange act, his unusual Okay, so then now she spent some time on that. She makes the really great point that even while inflicting judgment, God remembered mercy because the, a tribe of people called the Kenites, if I'm not mistaken, right? The Kenites dwelt with the Amalekites and the message was given to them, separate yourself from the Amalekites because if you stay with them, you also will be destroyed. So even here, and the Kenites presumably are an idolatrous tribe themselves, but they were an idolatrous tribe who still had opportunities, there's our word, opportunities to repent, opportunities to obey, opportunities to turn from their idolatrous ways. But the Amalekites had passed that threshold. And when they passed that threshold, God was forced, required by the nature of the thing to recognize reality and then to administer appropriate punishment. I see this. I don't really have a, a problem with it at all, actually. I, I see it as a, as a mercy. I see it as a merciful necessity. 
And so I'm, I'm totally comfortable with it. Okay, so then uh, Saul is given the command to go up, and uh, it says here, the expedition, bottom of page 774, the expedition to destroy the Amalekites was not to be entered upon for the purpose of self-aggrandizement. The Israelites were not to receive either honor of conquest or the spoils of the enemies. They were to engage in this war solely as an act of obedience to God for the purpose of executing his judgment upon the Amalekites. I thought this was fascinating. You know, that, that in this particular case, God says, not as an arbitrary act, he says these people are so vile, their culture is so corrupt, I don't want you taking their cows, I don't want you taking their animals, and then bringing them back to sacrifice to me, or putting them in your own flocks, and then they interbreed, and then and then at some level, you know, you're sacrificing the, the offspring of these. No, I, I want all of this extirpated from the earth. And so you're not going in as an act of war, Israel conquering another nation and taking the spoils of war to yourself. Nope, that's not what this is. This is a total evisceration of these people, and I don't, I don't want anything to remain alive. Now, that sounds really harsh to us, and it is really harsh. I mean, this is a different time, a different world, a different context and situation. I mean, it sounds to us very barbaric, but if God, who knows all things, who's reluctant and slow to administer judgments of this kind, if God, who sees everything as it is, who sees everything perfectly, who knows every, who knows every human heart, if God administers that punishment, the very same God who later will hang on Calvary's cross and say, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. If that God is driven by the situation and the circumstances to this extreme, then I'm just going to say, well, I don't understand it and I don't like it, but it must have been fair. It must have been just. And so this is an execution. It's not a war of conquest. Okay. And so, and remember, going back to the command, you shall not steal, the command you shall not steal forbids wars of conquest. And we already dealt with the legality and the morality of God giving the Canaan land to Israel because it was his legal and moral right to give it to them, number one, because he's the possessor of all lands, and number two, because they had forfeited their right to life and their right to occupy that area. So this is not a war of conquest so much as it is a war of judgment. And God makes this point here specifically with the Amalekites, which I thought was great. So then uh, next page, 775, paragraph begins, the victory over the Amalekites was the most brilliant victory that Saul had ever gained. And you know that Saul himself was mindful of that. He was aware of that, that people thought, man, Saul, he's such a great king. Look at him. I mean, just look at how tall he is. Look at how handsome he is. I mean, he's such a wise general. And so she says, this victory over the Amalekites was the most brilliant victory that Saul had ever gained. It served to rekindle the pride of heart that was his great peril. The divine edict devoting the enemies of God to utter destruction was but partially fulfilled. Ah, there we go. Partial obedience, partial fulfillment of the requirement of God. That could be another good word, partial. Ambitious to heighten the honor of his triumphal return by the presence of a royal captive, Saul ventured to imitate the customs of the nations around him. Right, because this was a particularly cruel custom to destroy utterly a whole group of people and to keep the king so the king could see, the king could wallow in the misery knowing that all of his people are gone, eviscerated from the earth. And so it was a particularly cruel practice that the surrounding nations would engage in. And Saul here, trying to imitate the surrounding nations, thinking that was a good idea, 
and it was in, of course, direct disobedience to God's command, preserved Amalek. Well, God is not into cruelty, right? A judgment, yes. A, a, a just judgment, even a reluctant judgment, yes, but not cruelty for cruelty's sake. And so she says that uh, he was imitating the custom of the nations around him. He spared Agag, the fierce and warlike king of the Amalekites. The people reserved for themselves the finest of the flocks, herds, and beasts of burden, excusing their sin, right? Oh, it's plausibly, oh yeah, yeah, this is, this is plausible. Yeah, this is reasonable. Excusing their sin on the grounds that their cattle were reserved to be offered as sacrifices to Yahweh. But God had said, I don't want those cattle. And I don't even want your cattle breeding with those cattle. I want these people eviscerated from the earth because their practices, their ways, and their culture is so abhorrent, so abominable. This is a culture that if they had the opportunity, these are a people that if they had the opportunity, they would eviscerate Israel from the earth. And so he says, don't bring that to me. I don't want that. Destroy those. I, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need these polluted, tainted, corrupted animals to be sacrificed in my sanctuary. I don't need that, right? I created the universe. I created the world. I, I don't need, you know, I'm, I'm not penny pinching here. I'm not miserly. I can get my own cattle. I can bless your flocks. It'll all be fine. Destroy them. But it says the cattle were reserved to be offered as sacrifices to the Lord. It was their purpose, however, to use them to use merely as a substitute to save their own cattle, which I thought was fascinating. Hey, yeah, we'll sacrifice these animals and save our own. So in a way, this act of, a, and, and this is the way that the enemy works, right? The, or our own sinful heart works. In an act of apparent obedience, what we're actually doing is preserving for ourselves the something that benefits us, which I thought was telling. She then, in the next paragraph, I thought tellingly calls him an independent monarch. Right at this point, he's no longer God's king and God's chosen and God's anointed. He has now become an independent monarch. When Samuel receives word about Saul's disobedience, he weeps all night. He just pours his heart out to God. We've already seen how he regarded Saul as a kind of son to him. So he just weeps all night. And then this is what I thought maybe the best paragraph, one of the best paragraphs, or sections in the whole chapter, bottom of page 775, 630 of the original paragraph begins, God's repentance. This is amazing. I mean, the theological depth here and the theological clarity here is mind-blowing. I mean, 10 out of 10. Let's read this. God's repentance is not like man's repentance. The strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Man's repentance implies a change of mind. Correct. Literally, in, in, the, in the New Testament, the word repent is metanoia, metanoia, which literally means to change the mind, to change the mind. And so she says, man's repentance is a change of mind. God's repentance implies a change of circumstances. Ooh, okay, unpack, unpack this. And relations, a change of situation. Man may change his relation to God by complying with the conditions upon which he may be brought into the divine favor, or he may, by his own action, place himself outside of the favoring condition. Friends, this to me is so perfectly communicated. I actually wrote here, what a way to say this. Okay, so you think of it as a current, as a stream, right? God's blessings, God's favor is a stream, and... God is inviting everybody into that stream, into that current, into that flow. 
we are invited to find ourselves inside of God's blessing and favor. Everybody is. Every nation is. Egypt was invited that way, right? When, when God revealed to Pharaoh the seven years of famine, or seven years of plenty, and then the seven years of famine. And God raised up Joseph to place Egypt in the flow of God's blessing. God invites nations, God invites families, God invites individuals into the flow, into the river of his blessing. And so what she says here is so interesting. I'm going to read it again. Man may change his relation to God by complying with the conditions upon which he may be brought into the divine favor. Well, those conditions are repentance and obedience and faith in the Messiah, in the Deliverer. Or he may, by his own action, place himself outside of the favoring condition. Exactly. And this is what Saul does. This is why my point, Saul rejected, is less Saul rejected by God and more Saul rejected God. God placed himself in an, excuse me, Saul, Saul placed himself in an orientation to God and God honored that orientation. Reluctantly, but he honored it. I just think this could not be communicated better. It's just amazing. She continues in the next sentence, Saul's disobedience changed his relation to God, but the conditions of acceptance with God were unaltered. God's requirements were still the same, for with him there is no variation or shadow of turning. Precisely. Yeah, we God doesn't alter his orientation to humanity. How about this? For God so loved the world. Well, there it is, ladies and gentlemen. That's every person, every individual, every nation, every child, every man, every woman. God so loved the world. The world finds itself with ample opportunities, abundant opportunities to, to place itself in, how does she say it here? To place yourself inside the favoring condition. Amen. But if we place ourselves outside the favoring condition, well, what transpires is not that God rejects us. No, God loves the world. It's that we reject God and we reject the conditions upon which we can be placed inside of his favoring condition. And so man's repentance is a changing of mind. God's repentance, she says, is a changing of situations and circumstance, a change in the way that people relate to him, whether positively or negatively. And Saul here chooses negatively. Now, as Samuel goes to relay to Saul the news that God is thoroughly displeased, it says here, and this is very important, Samuel cherished a hope. Even now, Samuel cherishes a hope, a glimmer of hope, that upon reflection, Saul might become consciousness of his sin. Maybe. Maybe. But as soon as Saul sees Samuel, Saul exclaims, Wow! Blessed are you of Yahweh, of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And as soon as he says these words, Samuel knows immediately. He knows instantly that was a vain hope. There is going to be no repentance. There is going to be no self-evaluation. No. Blessed of the Lord, I've done the very thing that God asked me to do. And uh, I actually wrote in the next paragraph, I'm still on page 776, I actually wrote in the margin here, I roll. You know, like you, uh, you roll your eyes. You're just like, you've got to be kidding me. Here we go. They have brought the, da, da, da. he says, um, and if you have obeyed the command of the Lord, why do I hear the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen? Saul answered, they, they have brought them from the Amalekites. 
The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, which I thought was telling. Not to the Lord my God, but to the Lord your God. Right? That is a telling change. I would say even an unexpected change of pronoun. Right? The Lord your God, not the Lord my God, which is the point. This is the No, no, no. They're going to sacrifice to the Lord your God. He's just trying to curry favor with Samuel here. Of course, Samuel is not buying it. He's he, not for a moment does he does he buy into this. He sees immediately through the self-delusion of Saul. And um, she says that the message of Saul's rejection brought unspeakable grief to the heart of Samuel. It had been delivered, it had to be delivered before, before the whole army of Israel when they were filled with pride and triumphal rejoicing over a victory that was accredited to the valor and generalship of their king. Like, this is the worst possible moment to alert Israel to the fact that Saul is so consistently disobedient that God has rejected him as king. And they're going to be like, what? They're going to be confused. What? He's just won his most decisive battle. His valor and wise generalship, what? This doesn't make any sense. But that's because the people themselves were in, in disobedience. And so, good illustration here, a good point I should say here is, when we're disobedient, it's easy to excuse disobedience in others. So, well, their sin's not so bad. I mean, I mean, it's there's a plausible reason for their, I mean, come on, it's not so bad because we're trying to, we're trying to filter our own sin and our own failures, and so it's easy for us to excuse disobedience or partial obedience in those around us. So she says, just plainly, she says that Samuel was not deceived. Saul persisted in his justification, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I went on the mission that God told me to, and look, I've even brought back Agag. I mean, to be able to say something that was an express point of disobedience, because he wanted everything destroyed, Yahweh was very clear, to say something that was an actual point of disobedience as if it's obedience shows the incredible self-delusion, the willful blindness. He is self-deceived here. And, and so then finally, Samuel speaks these words to him. Has Yahweh a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? God doesn't need this. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. As in obeying the voice of Yahweh, behold, to obey is better than all these sacrifices. And to heed, to listen, to hearken, better than the fat of rams. Rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord. And there it is, ladies and gentlemen. You have rejected the word of Yahweh. He also has rejected you from being king. And if you didn't already mark this, make sure you mark the first and second rejections there. God's rejection of Saul as king is the second rejection. The first rejection is the rejection of Saul by Saul of God's word and will. And that's the secret that unlocks the whole chapter. And really, in many ways, it's the secret that unlocks the Old Testament. God is not going to reject Israel so much as Israel is going to reject God. Yes, there will certainly be times and places and circumstances like this where it will appear at first blush that what's happening is God is rejecting his people. No, what's actually happening is God is honoring the rejection that his people have of him. And you have to keep this clear in your mind. Otherwise, you're going to perceive God 
as arbitrary and vindictive and vengeful and excessive. Now, God's rejection of Saul, and I know I've already said this, but I'm going to say it again. God's rejection of Saul is merely a recognition of the reality of the situation. And God cannot lie. God cannot pretend that something is what it isn't and isn't what it is. Saul has rejected him. He's rejected his word. He's rejected his will. He's rejected his express command. So in God's rejection of Saul, it is simply a recognition of the way things are. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord. Even the word because functions so importantly there. Because on this basis, on these grounds, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also, also, in addition to, in response to, in reaction to, he also has rejected you from being king. And so you have the first and the second rejection. Make sure you note it and note it well. Okay, so then, you know, the chapter becomes almost unreadable, the rest of the chapter, because, not the rest of it, but at least for a bit here, because he just continues to sort of double down on, oh, well, the people, oh, no, 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 it, she says he still persisted in casting blame upon the people, declaring that he had sinned because he was afraid of them. Oh, no, I was afraid of, if I told the people to slaughter all the goodly things, then they would rebel against me. And so I was really just making a plausible accommodation. You're the king. You're the king. They're going to listen to you. You're God's anointed. You can't be a leader when it suits you and then a timid, wilting lily when it suits you as well. You're the king. Say kingly things. That was our word yesterday, kingly. And what they thought what, what they thought they were getting when they got a kingly leader was one thing, but what they actually got was a totally different thing. Okay? They got a lemon is basically what they ended up getting. So uh, quite a little bit more here. At this point, Samuel says, hey, by the way, where's Agag? Where's Agag? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, mean, I can just imagine in my mind's eye, Saul, even here, because he's so delusional. You know, in my imagination, I see it like this. Oh, yeah, you, wait till you see him. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll bring him to you. Hold on. Hey, bring Agag, bring Agag. And so Agag is, you know, brought from wherever he was being detained, and he's brought up in chains, and, and Saul with a little, you know, a little puff of excitement. Look at, I got him. I, ca I captured him. I mean, Samuel, no hesitation, takes out a sword and just obliterates him. Just, just no mercy, no hesitation, nothing. Kills him on the spot. And... As unmerciful as this might seem, it was actually the most merciful thing possible to Agag himself. To Agag himself. Because Agag, what, is going to now live with the horror of knowing that all of his people have been extirpated from the earth and all, I mean, no. No, it, he should have never been retained and detained like he was. And also, of course, in mercy to Israel. You don't get, and, and I like what he says there. Let's see, does she quote this? Uh, yeah, she does. As your sword has made women childless, so your mother shall be childless among women. Which I guess kind of implies that, that Agag's mom was still alive. But, but I'm, I'm immovably committed to this idea, at least based on the text of Scripture as I understand it, that if, if someone takes a life, their life is taken right? I think I've already said this before, but in case I haven't, I'll just say it again. Because it's easy to get, you know, when I'm, when I'm just going day after day after day, and then I'm also now teaching at Arise. I'm, did I say that in Arise, or did, did I say that in OT with DA? 
Yeah, so the idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and a bone for a bone, all of this is a lid, is designed to place a lid on escalation so that you don't go, oh yeah, oh yeah, you've done one to me, I do two to you. You've done two to me, I do four to you. You've done four, well I do, and, and it just escalates up. And so one for one is a lid. It's a, it's a restraint on unnecessary escalation and revenge. And so, too, if a, if a life was taken, going all the way back to the time of Noah, if a life was taken, that person forfeits their right to remain alive because life is uniquely and proprietarily the property of God, right? The Bible says about Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 4, in him was life. You don't have the prerogative to take another's life, right? And so, here, you might say, well, wait a minute, Samuel just took Agag's life. Yeah, he took Agag's life as a punishment under the, the, the you know, divine express command of Yahweh, because if you take life, you lose life, right? You, you don't get to take life and keep your life. And this is what's meant even in the New Testament in Romans chapter 13, where it says that, that the government doesn't wield the sword in vain, for me, I, I have zero problem with this, and I know that there are people that do, the idea that if somebody has taken a life, and it's clear, and it's unambiguous, that their life should be taken, I think they should be given a fair trial. I think there should be the opportunity for repentance. And, I mean, the truth is, you don't need very long to repent. I mean, how much time did the thief on the cross have to repent? A few hours? You don't need much time to repent. And so, if, if a life has been absolutely unprovoked, because we've already talked about the cities of refuge. We're talking about murder here, not manslaughter, not accidental death. Yeah, I mean, Amalek, or excuse me, Amalek, uh, Agag here, of the Amalekites, I, I have zero problem with this at all. I, I just think it, it's just sort of like, if you, if you put your hand in the flame, you get burned. That's not the flame being mean to you. That's not the flame acting in vengeance upon you. That's the that's the nature of flame. It's the nature of the thing. And God says the nature of life is if you take a life, you lose your life, right? So that's not God being vindictive or vengeful. That's you doing a thing that has consequences, consequences that God says expressly and throughout the Old and the New Testaments. These are the consequences. So there's a big difference between murder, which is all in the motivation, and an act of God, a judgment of God. I mean, is God guilty of murder? In the flood, is God guilty of murder? In Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, is God guilty of murder? In the final judgment, when, when people are extirpated from the earth and annihilated, is God guilty of murder? Of course he is not. Life is his. It is proprietarily and uniquely his, and he takes back that which those that have just had their life taken back have forfeited their life. In fact, in a really wonderful way, and, and this is what's actually going on, when people make these decisions, they instantly forfeit their right to life, but God bears, including us, sin. The wages of sin is death. When we sin, we instantly forfeit our right to life. It's only by the grace of God, by the, the mag magnanimity of God, that we're given opportunities to recognize our forfeiture of life and to repent of it. And so that's what's going on. But in the final analysis, what God will do is he will honor the choice and recognize the decisions of those that have consistently and now permanently forfeited their right to life. That's what's happening in 
judgment in the final analysis. And I'm just really committed to it. So when I see Agag getting slain here by Samuel the prophet, I have no problem with it, like zero problem. It was the most merciful thing that could do be done in that situation. Now, is it sad? Yes, it's sad. Of course it's sad. Agag was a life. It was a life with potential. It's a life that could have been. In fact, I don't know if you noticed, but the very next paragraph, listen to this. That phrase that we saw yesterday comes back here again. Would have been. Would have been. Let me just read that here. Had he remained humble, I'm on page 779, 633 of the original. Paragraph begins, when called to the throne, Saul had a humble opinion of his own capabilities. Jump down to the middle of that paragraph. It says, had he remained humble, seeking constantly to be guided by divine wisdom, he would have been enabled to discharge the duties of his high position with success and honor. Under the influence of divine grace, every good quality would have been gaining strength, while tendencies, evil tendencies would have lost their power. What might have been, what could have been, what would have been. And so, yeah, so too with Agag. There was potential there. There was possibility there. Small though it be, everybody has the opportunity to turn to God, to respond to God. And when that is finally and fully and permanently forfeited, you don't get to keep living. I mean, John makes this point in, what is it, 1 John chapter 3. He says, you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. No, mur Listen to that. No murderer has eternal life biting in them, abiding in them. Why? Because to murder is to take life, and when you take life, as an immediate consequence, just like putting your hand in the flame, you lose your life. Now, you might not lose it immediately, but you lose the right to your life. And if, after you've murdered somebody, there is a... Remember, remember back, there's a, there's a period of, of opportunity for repentance. Remember back in the city of refuge. Okay, in the, in the city of refuge, if, if you had accidentally killed somebody your axe head fell off, you know, flew off and hit somebody in the head, and you're like, oh no, this is unintentional, I've accidentally killed somebody, but the family's not going to know this is accidental, and so you are to flee immediately, quickly, without hesitation, to a city of refuge where your case would be tried immediately. Now, this is what's interesting. If when your case was tried, watch this, watch this, if when your case was tried, you were found to be innocent, you remained in the city of refuge. But if you, under your own, you know, ill-advised decision, decided to wander outside of the city of refuge, and one of the avengers of blood, one of the family members that was really upset that their loved one had been killed, again, let's just say that it was accidental, and it had been decided, it had been adjudicated and been decided to have been accidental. If you wandered outside the city of refuge, you could still be killed, and there was no blood guilt. Okay, but let's take it a step further. Let's say you flee to the city of refuge, and your case is tried, and you are actually found to be guilty. You were found to be guilty. Do you know what happened? They kicked you out of the city of refuge. And do you know what happened then? The avenger of blood killed you. I, I, I might sound like a really terrible person, but I don't find this to be barbaric. I find it to be civil. I find it to be completely reasonable. If you take life, you lose your life. If you put your hand in the flame, it gets burned. That's just the way it works. If you jump off a cliff, you fall you know, gravity does what it does. And so when we see these passages, some people get really, you know, queasy. Oh, I don't like this. I don't like, you know, Samuel just kills Agag right there. Yeah, yeah, he does, because Agag made decisions. And God now honors those decisions. Um, okay, carrying on here. Uh, I'm just going to turn a couple pages. Uh, page 780 I thought was really great, and I need to speed this up. Page 780, 
Um, right at the top of that page, there's a paragraph that, that it's actually from the previous page. There's a long paragraph that begins, but Saul presumed upon his exaltation. Okay, right at the end of that paragraph, she makes a really interesting point. She says, um, had he, Saul, been willing to see and confess his error, this bitter experience would have proved a safeguard for the future. Okay, that's amazing. And then she says the very same kind of thing in the next paragraph, also right at the end. Listen to this. This is the paragraph that begins, if the Lord had then separated himself. Um, go down to the end of that. Um, kind of a long sentence here. When one who professes to be a child of God becomes careless in doing his will, thereby influencing others to be irreverent and unmindful of the Lord's instructions, watch this. It is still possible for his failures to be turned into victories. Whoa! Wow, I like this. If he will but accept reproof with true contrition of soul and return to God in humility and faith, the humiliation of defeat often proves a blessing by showing us our inability to do the will of God without his aid. Wow! Right at the end of both of these paragraphs, she's basically saying that our failures, if we repent of them and if we turn to God, can actually turn in to safeguards and even the humiliation associated with those failures can turn into victories. Friends, this is so encouraging because maybe you're like me and you have failed. Maybe you're like me and you've made some really bad decisions. If you have failed and you have made some really bad decisions and you have found yourself wallowing in the mire of sin and succumbing to temptation, what she's saying here is that even your defeats, if we if we turn to God, those defeats can actually be in the same way that a broken bone can heal even thicker and stronger than when it was originally broken. Where sin abounds, grace can abound much more. These defeats can actually be turned into victories. And really, that's what we see in the cross. The cross looked like a giant defeat, but it's a defeat, right? Because he was crucified. He was crucified in a humiliating and terrible and cruel way. And yet that seeming defeat was turned into the greatest of all victories. Now, this isn't an excuse to sin, but it is an excuse to repent. It is an opportunity to repent and to cast ourselves on God and to say, God, I made a mess of it. God, I failed. God, I wallowed in the mire of sin. Like a dog, I returned to, to my vomit. And, and God can turn the repentance into a situation where you are further safeguarded from sin. It's, it's really kind of paradoxical and yet really beautiful. That even at this late stage, if Saul had said, you know what, I'm delusional, I'm, I'm self-deceived, and, and turned in earnestness and in sincerity and truly metanoia, changed his mind and changed his orientation to God, all of this rebellion would have actually sort of galvanized and solidified his repentance because he would have thought, wow, now I see clearly what I had done before I hadn't seen it, but now I see it. I once was blind, but now I see and I'm not doing that again. I'm not going back there. And so in a really wonderful and paradoxical way, even our failures, God can leverage and turn into victories. Not that he sanctions the failure or that he enjoys the disobedience, but that when we orient ourselves to God properly out of failure, out of disobedience, God can turn even that into a safeguard against future and further sin. Hallelujah. 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 Okay, then it's in the next paragraph where she makes this point here. When Saul turned away, when Saul turned away from the reproof sent to him by God's Holy Spirit, 
and persisted in his stubborn, stubborn self-justification. He rejected, underline it. He rejected. He rejected the only means by which God could work to save him from himself. There it is. He rejected God prior to God rejecting him as king. That's the point. He rejected, underline that. She even says in the very next sentence, he had willfully separated himself from God. Going back to that river, that stream of God's blessing and of God's beneficence that flows, we can place ourselves either in the stream or out of the stream. He had placed himself outside of the stream. He had separated himself. He had rejected. And so um, then she has a little section here where she talks about partial obedience. She says, God has not given men liberty to depart from his requirements. Amen. She says that because we don't know the future, we should obey. Exactly. We talked about that yesterday, right? The only safe course is obedience because we don't know what the future holds. We don't know what large consequences might be wrapped up with what to us seem like a very small sin. Um, she then spends a little bit of time talking about the great controversy and how Satan is always there to, to tempt us into the plausibility of sin. Oh, yeah, it's not, yeah, come on, it's not so bad. It's, there's a plausible excuse. No. And then I'm just going to go to the very last paragraph. Very last paragraph. Yet the Lord, having placed on Saul the responsibility of the kingdom, did not leave him to himself. He caused the Holy Spirit to rest upon Saul to reveal to him his own weakness. Remember when he prophesied with the roving band of prophets and people said, is Saul also among the prophets? He saw it. He saw, he had a glimpse, a taste of the sweetness. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. He had a taste of it. He was given an opportunity to see himself as he was, not as the tall, dark, and handsome, but ultimately deluded person that he was, but to see himself as he was. God caused the Holy Spirit to rest upon Saul to reveal to him his own weakness and his need of divine grace. And Saul had relied, and had Saul relied upon God, he would have been with him. So long as his will was controlled by the will of God, so long as, that's a great repetition of the phrase there, so long as he yielded to the discipline of his spirit, God could crown his efforts with success. But when Saul chose to act independently of God, which is quite interesting, I noted earlier she called him an independent monarch. I'll have to note that. Independently of God, the Lord could no longer be his guide. Could no longer. Not would no longer. Could no longer could no longer be his guide. He was forced to set him aside. Wow, he could no longer. And he was forced to set him aside. Forced by what? By some, by some power greater than God? No, there is no power greater than God in terms of capacity or, or puissance or, or might. No, uh, he was forced by the decisions that Saul himself had made. And God is constrained by even the decisions of free agents to some degree. We've talked about this. Then he called to the throne a man after his own heart, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, not one who is faultless in character, talking now about David, not one who is faultless in character, but who instead of trusting to himself would rely upon God and be guided by his spirit, who when he sinned, ah, ah, not if, not if, when he sinned, would submit to reproof and correction. Because God knew David's course of action. He knew that he would fall and that he would fail, but he would relate to that falling and failing in a totally different way. Not excuse-making, 
right? Not partial obedience, not partial repentance. He would, as we see, as we have a beautiful, timeless, uh, maybe the most beautiful picture of all in Psalm 51, we see how he related to his failures and to his sins. Okay, let's get to our rubric. And um, the point, the person, the prayer, and the practice, and the promise, the point was to tell the story of Saul's rejection of God and of his rejection of obedience and repentance. And of God's recognition of Saul, or I put here, God's recognition of Saul is response, or rejection. I'm, I'm misreading here. Let me write, let me read that again. God's rejection of Saul is responsive. It is a recognition of reality of the way that things were. Amen. Okay, the person um, uh, right here, this is a direct quote from page 773, 628 of the original. To our merciful God, the act of punishment is a strange act. Wow. The whole point of the person part of the rubric is what do we learn about God? Well, that's an incredible thing to learn about God, that to our merciful God, the act of punishment is a strange act. She quoted Isaiah 28 to that effect. Amen. The prayer, God, please give me, or please make me a man after your own heart. And then I put, like my namesake, David. Right? My name is David. And I love the fact that my mom called me David. Right? David was one of the great figures in all of Scripture. Arguably one of the five most important figures in the whole of the scriptural record. Right? Not including Jesus. Maybe even top three. And so... Yes, I'm I'm thrilled to have this name, but I want to just I don't want to just have the name. I want to have the the condition that David had in his post-repentance. I want to be a man after God's own heart. How do we practice this chapter? I put here to not partially obey God's express commands, rules, and principles. Like I used to say to my sons, delayed obedience is disobedience, and partial obedience is disobedience. And then finally, the promise I just quoted from 779 of the Types and Symbols, 633 of the original. Here's the quote. To all who seek him, to all who seek his aid, can't read my own writing here, to all who seek his aid, he will give strength to correct their errors. Hallelujah, sweet Jesus. To all who seek his aid, he will give strength to correct their errors. Friends, that's what I need. I need strength to correct my errors, my failures, my faults, my shortcomings, my temptations that I, that I submit to. I need that. And so now we are at our word. I'm really excited about my word, and I'm excited to see what your word is as well. So great to be on this journey with you all. I tell you, I wake up in the morning, and... I, Often I've read the chapter the night before as well, but I just, I get so energized. Like, what does God have in store for me today? And that's exactly how your devotions are supposed to feel. They're supposed to feel like you're waking up and saying, what's God's word for me today? What's God's message for me today? And so I, I really love it. I absolutely love it. Okay, what's your word is what I want to know. Okay, Victor went with the low-hanging fruit, rejected. Okay, and so does uh, I. It's C. Denton, rejection. Cassandra goes with yield, or is that, yeah, yield. Self-delusional, yeah, I agree. 
Independent, says Rich. Yeah, that's a great one there. Yeah, an independent monarch. Self-justification, subterfuge, rejected. Yeah, that, sub, that interesting use of subterfuge there. Presumption, independently in the chapter. Rejected. Oh, witchcraft. Very interesting. Own, self-justification, imitate. Well, a lot of different words here. Disobedience, willful, good. Blind, dishonor. Departed. Yeah, depart. That's very good. Or blind, obedience. Victor says, I got to get that low-hanging fruit, LOL. Unsubdued, unsubdued. Oh, interesting. I didn't even see that word. I must have missed that. Torn. Oh, very good. Like the garment was torn. Separated, lies, irrevocable, submit, unspeakable. I haven't seen my word yet, but I'll be really surprised if I do. Unspeakable, self-aggrandizement. Good job. Jim says, infidelity, self-deceived. A lot of those. Yeah, Lisa, very good. My word is, is what? I don't understand that. Sorry, Space SDA, I didn't get that. Pride, variableness, retribution. Oh, still, still, your word is still, gotcha, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, presumptuous, regret so long as, Mary, that's actually three words. Shame on you, just kidding. Um, Yeah. Doreen says, my word is rejected. No, my word is not rejected, but it does start with an R. My word does start with an R. I haven't seen it yet. Prerequ prerequisite, good word. Oh, downtrodden, interesting. Megan asks, was my word partial? No, 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 I don't think anybody's gonna get it. Mikey Minimo, oh, it says lemon. Oh, that's good, that's good. Yeah, yeah, what looked to be this great, Flash, amazing, hot rod of a car turned out to be a lemon. Very good, Mikey. I like that. Um, somebody says, was my word removed? No, no, it wasn't. Okay, you ready? Here it is. Nobody's getting it. Renounced, repulsed, reversing, rekindled. No, no. Relation. <laughs> Rebellion. No. Rebellion. No, no. Okay, here it is. Are you ready? My word was reserve or reserved. Reserve or reserved. And let me walk you through why that was my word. First of all, she uses the word twice uh, in the chapter, and I'll come to that in just a second. But I had seven reasons. As soon as I read it, I was like, oh, I think that's my word. And then I went back and read it through a second time, and I was like, oh yeah, that makes a ton of sense to me. This is what God spoke to me. So I have seven reasons why my word was reserve uh, or reserved. Um, number one, God um, was patient with the Amalekites and reserved judgment, right? Obviously, God reserved judgment for 400 years, even though that judgment was, was immediately justified and would have been fair in the, in the immediate moment, God reserved judgment, number one. Number two, God reserves judgment generally as a last option because it's his strange act. It's his, it's his unusual act. And so he waits, he's patient. You remember the parable of Jesus with the fig tree? Now give it one more year. Now, now dig around it and give it one more year. And so number two, as a general principle, God reserves judgment as a last option. Number three, Saul and the people reserved for themselves the animals and even Agag, right? And Ellen White actually says that. 
She says, the people reserved for themselves the finest of the flocks, herds, and beasts of burden, excusing their sin on the ground that the cattle were reserved to be offered as sacrifices to the Lord. And so the people reserved both the animals and Agag um, for themselves, and so did Saul. Number four, Saul was reserved both in his obedience and, his, and, in, his, and in his repentance. They were partial. He kept back. Reserved literally means to keep back, right? And so he kept back some of, he obeyed partially, but not entirely. He repented to some degree, or he confessed. He didn't repent. He confessed to some degree, but not completely. He kept back. And we do this too. We, we, we keep back the full restoration, the full repentance, the full confession. Uh, number five, devastated Samuel, I thought this was interesting, reserved a hope that Saul would see the error of his ways and repent. Do you remember that? Samuel, I'm reading now, this is on page 776, Samuel cherished a hope that upon reflection Saul might become conscious of his sin. He reserved, he, he knew that it was unlikely, but he just reserved that little glimmer of hope that just maybe, just maybe, Saul could be led to see his sin and repent. But when Saul walks up and says, hey, blessed of the Lord, I have obeyed the command of the Lord, he knew. No. Number six, Samuel was not reserved in the immediate execution of Agag. There was no reservation there. He said, where's Agag? Bring him up here. And he didn't bring him up there to lecture him or to have a little talk to him or to have a DNM, what the kids sometimes call a DNM, a deep and meaningful. No. He brought him up and immediately slew him. He was not reserved. And then finally, my seventh reason is God had reserved for himself a king after his own heart, David. He said, okay, I'm done with this king, but I have reserved for myself. And so those are the seven reasons that I really like the word reserved. I felt like for me, there were a lot of great words and many of the words that were mentioned here were great. But I, I just, for me, it really captured the essence of many aspects of the chapter. And that's often what I look for when I look for a word. I'm looking for something that captures a lot of what's going on in the chapter, and sometimes in slightly different ways. Like, remember Samson, might, his might, but then also what might have been. I like those plays on word. My, my mind just works that way. I'm a lover of words, and, and I like to sort of look at the different aspects of, of the definition. I even looked up the word reserve just to see, and even when I read the dictionary definition, I was like, man, this fits even better than I had originally thought. Quite fascinating. So that was my word. Friends, the most important word, I think, for all of us here is the word repentance, right? We just have to bring ourselves before God. We have to have a change of mind. We have to figure out if we've taken ourselves outside of that flow by some action, by some word, by some thought, by some disobedience, and place ourselves back in that flow. We need to change our mind about the situation, and that's what I want to do, not just once in my life, but over and over again to, to learn how to deepen my repentance so that I can sincerely say to God, God, I haven't reserved anything. Back. I've, I've given you everything. I've, I've said everything. I've confessed everything. I don't want any little bit for myself. I suppose this is another way of saying what we've said earlier about, you know, making peace with sin and only driving the, the, uh, Canaanites mostly out, 80% out, 90% out, reserving a little bit. No, no, I want to be unreserved in my love for God, my obedience to God, and in my passion for him and his word. Amen and amen. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you, we thank you, we praise you, but we know that the big story here is your love for us. And Father, you have 
created this stream, this river of blessing and opportunity that we can find ourselves in. Or, Father, we can be independent. We can be over here outside of your river and flow and current of blessing. Father, we don't want to do that. We don't want to be independent of you. We want to be dependent on you. And we don't want to be reserved in our love for you and our worship of you. We want to be unreserved, uninhibited, totally sold out, unlike Saul, but like Samuel. So, Father, help us to learn the lessons of the Old Testament, to see ourselves in these characters, and to turn to you with our whole heart. Not most of our heart, not part of our heart, but our whole heart. And this is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.